midst. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Mark chapter 2. We're in a fall-long series called Jesus 101 that is all about uh, the life of Jesus through the eyes of the book of Mark. And as you're doing that, I also want to highlight Growth Track to you today. It has been so neat to see so many new faces and new folks in the crowd. Uh, our mission here at Victory Life is for folks to join the story, live the story, and to tell the story. And you can probably in some ways uh, surmise what those things mean, but our join the story elements are real simple. First, if you're new here and you want to find out whether or not the pastors are weirdos, uh, we, we are, but we're not the worst kind of weirdos. And, and I, I'm in the Welcome Center every Sunday. Pastor Otto is around. Come say hi to us. I won't hijack you for 32 hours. I won't show up at your house with a pie, but just say hi. I'm new here. Don't know if this will be my home church, but I really like it so far because I have to say that because I'm talking to you. So come up and see me. But then if you've been here for a few weeks and you want to know more about the church, the best way to do that is to get involved in Growth Track. Uh, it's four weeks. doesn't take long. If you miss a session, no big deal. We're running this all year long, so you can pick up on the session you miss. Uh, we've had people go through Growth Track, and when they go through Growth Track, they find out who we are, what we're doing, and how they can pitch in here at the church. And so that's what Growth Track is all about. So if you, if you get an opportunity to be part of the next one starting next week during this service time, we would love to have you do that. Fill this out. Drop it. Uh, no, drop it in the offering. It already happened. But come by the Welcome Center. Drop it off. Hand it to me in the Welcome Center. Hand it to Pastor Otto. We'd love to see you in Growth Track. It's a great way for you to become a part of what Victory Life is doing, like, immediately. So if you know that you want to hang around, if you do go through Growth Track and you find out that maybe we believe something a little bit different than you or you're not real comfortable committing right yet, that's fine. We won't pressure you. We still will not show up at your house with a pie. And so we just want to highlight Growth Track to you today. That's one of our Join the Story elements here at Victory Life. Are you in Mark chapter 2? A couple of years ago, I walked in here on a Sunday morning, and I came right through those doors, and the band was practicing because our band is so dedicated they make it here before me. It's a true story. And I walked in, and I came to get my preaching folder, which I'm often missing, and one of the guys up here on the stage, who I have about 10 or 15 years on, looked at me the minute I walked through the door and went, <gasps> and he pointed at me. I said, what? He says, you're wearing jeans. And I says, yeah. He said, we're not allowed to wear jeans. I said, we're not? Here, here, here was one of the band members telling the senior pastor what the dress code was. It was awesome. It was a great moment. No sooner had he done that than somebody else who was on the stage went, oh, oh, pastor's in jeans. I'm wearing jeans next week. Here I found out something that if I did know I'd forgotten, which was many moons ago, probably when my dad was still pastor here, he, he mandated that no jeans on the stage. You should wear slacks or a suit or, or this, that, or the other thing. And I don't know how many of you grew up around a church, but our dress code in churches today is a lot different than it was 30 years ago, isn't it? Yeah, like it's a little bit different because it said somewhere back in the book of Second Hesitations, thou must wear a suit to church, you know? <laughs> that was the rule. That was the rule in a church. You had to wear a suit. When I first started preaching at Victory Life, I was always in a suit. And then all of a sudden, like we changed a little, a little bit and I, I, could, I could go open collar. Open, open collar was a revolution. And then after I went open collar for a while, I, I, I moved on to sport coat and slacks, and that was, that was a revolution. But you still had to wear a tie with a sport coat and slacks. But then, then you, we could drop the tie, and the, what am I trying to get at here? Here's what I'm trying to get at. Isn't it funny how the longer you're part of a place, uh, the more sort of unwritten rules start to come about in that place? And the reason that, that a generation ago Christians said that we, we should wear suits is because the idea was we want to give God our best. 
There's nothing wrong with that, is there? We want to give God our best. But the truth is, our entire worship team paid more for their jeans than they paid for their last suit. So, theoretically, wearing jeans is giving God your best. Here's, here's the point to all of this. It's just interesting that we get to these patterns where we have unwritten rules in church, isn't it? And you know what? It doesn't matter what religion or, or what faith you have. Uh, the more you spend time engaged in a certain religious community, you begin to do religious things and think religious thoughts. And even if things come from a good place, can't they get out of whack really quick? Like even good things can get bad really quick. The four stories we're going to look at in the life of Jesus today, you say, do we have time for four stories? We're going to see. The four stories we're going to look at with Jesus today is when Jesus comes into conflict with the Pharisees. Now, maybe you've heard the word Pharisee used in, in, in modern day. Oh, you Pharisee. It means somebody who's enamored with the rules. But in the ancient times, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were sort of the popular people in Israel. They were very, very devout Jews. Very, very much people who theoretically wanted to please God. But the Pharisees had become a little calcified. They, they, had, they had gotten a little bit into the rules and a little bit less into the heart. Well, here comes the Son of God. The one who was there when the law of Moses was written for the Jewish people. The one who knows the heart behind the law. And he's going to come into conflict with the Pharisees over and over and over again during his earthly ministry. And it really is a conflict about authority. Who has the right to interpret godliness? Does the Son of God have the right? Or do the church people? Does the Son of God have the right, the Messiah? Or, or is, it, is it the people who have been in church the longest, like the Pharisees? That's the question that comes into play. And we see in these four short stories this morning that you can be very religious but far from godly. You can be very religious but far from godly. But we want to see what godliness is because we want to pursue the Son of God in what is godly. Look at chapter 2, verse 14 first with me this morning. Let's look at the first encounter that Jesus has with these folks. It says this, As Jesus passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and immediately he rose and followed him. Seemingly not an important story. This is just another one of Jesus calling people to him. Remember, we saw this back a couple of weeks ago when he called some fishermen out of a boat to follow him. But the problem was, this guy was not a fisherman. He was a tax collector, a trader, someone who didn't work for his Jewish brothers and sisters. He worked for the Romans, and he stole from his Jewish brothers and sisters in order to make a living. This was the worst neighbor you ever had. This was the guy who flew the Michigan flag outside his house. This was the guy who trained his dog to go number two on your lawn. This is the guy that in the middle of the afternoon steals your Amazon packages off the porch, whether he needs it or not. This is the guy that you despise. The, the, the tax collectors weren't even allowed to show up to church. They weren't allowed in the synagogue. And Jesus looks at a tax collector and says, hey, come on, follow me. Not only that, it gets, it gets worse. Jesus then went and had dinner with him and all his friends. And the Pharisees are like, hey, Jesus, no. You're not going to save anybody that way. You can't hang out with the sinners. Look at Jesus' response in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What does Jesus do? He shows that he can show love to a bunch of outcasts. And they were horrified. They were horrified. We'll get back to this later. Let's look at the second story. Look at verse 18. These are all right in a row in the book of Mark, probably with purpose. 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, hey, why do John's disciples fast and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Now what's fasting? Fasting is to abstain from food for a certain period of time in order to ostensibly to grow closer to God, seek God, uh, 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 receive a prayer request from God, to show devotion to God. No problem with fasting, but Jesus' disciples, they don't fast. Can you believe this? There is a spiritual act like fasting that Jesus and his disciples do not engage in. And Jesus looks at everybody and goes, hey, listen, you don't need to fast while I'm here. You don't need to seek me. I'm right here. He says, I'm the bridegroom and the celebration has begun. I have come here for, for, for a reason, for the good news, for the gospel, for, for your benefit. You don't need to fast right now. It makes no sense. He goes on to say two other things. He says, listen, you don't sew a new patch of cloth on an old garment. He says it'll rip and tear and be destroyed. He says, you don't pour new wine into an old wineskin. It's going to burst. In essence, he's saying God's doing a new thing. You don't need to fast right now, but he does say the day will come when you do fast. I wish I had time to break all of this down today, but if you go to a Jesus 101 Bible study this week, you can break this down. There's a couple taking place right after service today, and you can break it down. Jesus says, you don't need to fast right now. This is needless piety. Needless piety. Look at verse 23, third encounter. One Sabbath day, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look! Why are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Are you starting to get these pictures like the Pharisees were just doing this behind Jesus? Hi. Let's catch them in something new. So what was really going on here? The disciples had the temerity to walk through grain fields, pick some grain, rub it between their hands, and pop it in their mouth. They obviously were transgressing the law of God. Because the Sabbath was the day of rest. And you're not supposed to sow or to reap on the Sabbath. And therefore, for them to sow and reap, they're doing something wrong. By the time Jesus came to earth, there were 39 laws related to what work you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. 39. Try finding 39 Sabbath laws in the Old Testament. You won't. You won't. But that's what was going on. Those guys are plucking grain and they're eating it. How dare they? And you know, you still got to change diapers on the Sabbath. You know? I feel like changing a diaper is more work than plucking a little grain. But these guys were horrified. Look at what Jesus says to them. Verse 27. And he said to them, guys, I keep adding guys because Jesus is getting frustrated. You'll see this in the next verse. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus rejects their unnecessary rules in favor of common sense. And he does so in a way that really calls into question perhaps everything they think is godly. He looks at them and says, listen, the Sabbath was made for you. It's not to rule over you. This was a good law intended to get people to rest not to heap more laws on top of people so people would worry that they weren't resting. And Jesus says, by the way, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath anyways. I'm the Son of Man. Read Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I am he, and I get to interpret the law for you, and I want to tell you that my disciples, they're not messing up here. 
Final story we'll read in its entirety, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Did you catch that verse? Can we read that again? And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Catch this. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the people of Herod the king against him on how to destroy him. Jesus is pointing out that the most religious folks of the day had no heart. They were heartless. They are more interested in catching Jesus in a a law-breaking moment than whether or not this man has his deformity or disability healed. Why is this important for us today to see these stories in the life of Jesus? Well, first and foremost, we never want to become people who are so entrenched in religion that we lose our heart for people. We don't want to lose our heart for people. They cared nothing about this man with the withered hand. They would have been fine if the disciples went hungry. They were not for people. They didn't care about people anymore. They only cared about their standards and their rules. But there's a second reason that that this is so pernicious, that this is such a problem. They can't see Jesus. They can't see him for who he is. They are so into religion that they're missing the Messiah, the one who theoretically they've been waiting for and looking for for 700 years. They're missing him completely. They don't see him at all. They can't see Jesus. That can happen when we get a little bit too religious. And there's a third thing, but it's really not a point. Religious people are a drag. They are. You don't want to hang out with religious people. You don't want to go to dinner at their house. You really don't want to talk to them. Religious people are really tough to be around. But here's the beautiful thing. Godly people are not tough to be around. Jesus was godly, and people wanted to be around him. People were drawn to him in in droves. We've read the first chapters. People wanted to be near Jesus because godliness is winsome. Godliness is attractive. And there's such a difference between someone with a spirit of religion and someone with the spirit of God. Because people with the spirit of God you want to be around. You sense rightness oozing off them. You sense something different in them that's healthy and good, and you want to be around it. I want to be godly. I don't want to be religious. I want to look, feel, and act like Jesus did. How about you? Well, let's think about what Jesus did a little more intently here. And first point is this. Religion separates people. Let's think back to that story with the tax collector and his friends. Religion separates people. It says, they are not like me. 
they do not act like me. They are different than me. They are sinful in the eyes of God, and therefore I must avoid them like the plague. I need them to stay away from me. Religion says they are less than because they're sinners, and I want no part of that. That's what religion does. It separates you out. Don't get contaminated. Last winter, I got the flu. It was awful. I kept telling myself it was just a cold. Ten days later, that just a cold was still there because it was the flu. Well, my son Landon got it too, and none of my kids have ever had like the full-blown flu, but he just sat in the easy chair for like six days going, oh. it was awful. <laughs> I think he got it from me. Anyhow, after this entire bout, we figured maybe we should go to the doctor. Now, when you're a family with, with, of seven, you don't go to the doctor like for everything because you'd always be at the doctor. And so we, we wait, see how things are going. But we probably after day three or four, we go, oh, okay, let's take Landon to the doctor. And the doctor walks in and goes, yeah, yeah, you know, he's definitely got croup, but pretty sure he has the flu. And the doctor's just standing there talking to us. And I thought, if I knew someone had the flu, I would not be talking to them. I'd have a mask on, and I'd be talking from a window, going, we're pretty sure he has the flu. Give him plenty of fluids. Take him to the hospital if he gets worse. Goodbye. <laughs> Jesus spends time with all the flu people. He's not worried about being contaminated because Jesus is pursuing people. Godliness pursues. Religion separates. Godliness pursues. If, 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 if anybody had the right to look at human beings and go, oh, no don't want to be around them. It's God. He is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly good, and he condescends to our level and serves us in the midst of our flu-like symptoms of sin and death. And so Jesus walking into the household of sinners, no big deal, because he looks at all of us and goes, I'm already here. I've already had dinner with you. What's the big deal? You've all got the flu. Guess what? The entire world has the flu. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what sins they're engaged in. Doesn't matter what political party they affiliate with. Everyone has the flu. But godliness is to pursue everyone, regardless of the symptoms. Regardless of the symptoms. Sidebar. If you are in recovery or you have been bullied, do not spend time with the people who are dragging you down or who are bullying you, okay? Are you catching that? All right, so students, if you're being bullied, you don't need to spend time with those people. Folks, if you are in recovery, you do not need to spend time with those people because you've already proven that, that, that you're not the one that's gonna lift them up. God has to do that. Do you guys get the sidebar? All right, let's get back on track. But if, if those are not the circumstances, you should be less worried about people dragging you down and be worried about lifting them up. That's what godly people do. I'm not worried about people dragging me down. I know who I am. I know who God says I am. I know my morals. I know my standards. I know my ethics. And I'm not trying to pull them up to my morals, my standards, my ethics. I'm trying to give Jesus to them. They need the Lord. I don't need them to come up to my standards, my morals, my ethics, but I do need them to know the Son of God because he will change their life forever. He can worry about their morals and their standards and their ethics. I'm going to worry about pursuing them. Number two, I have no idea where I'm at. I'm enjoying preaching this morning. It's fun. 
Religion traditionalizes. And a lot of times religion can traditionalize the good. Fasting's good. The fact that the Pharisees did it Mondays and Thursdays, there's nothing wrong with that. Until it misses what God's doing right now because you've traditionalized something that was good yesterday. That's what's happened here. They can't see Jesus but for their traditions. They traditionalized a lot that was good, I'm sure. They wanted to be pious. They wanted to do godly things. But here, instead of seeking the Lord who was present, they were acting like the Lord wasn't there by their fasting. It just wasn't appropriate for that moment to be fasting. Jesus was there. The Son of God had arrived. They didn't need to draw closer to them. They were talking with him, and they couldn't see it. Jesus says right in this passage, the time will come when I am gone, and then it will be great to fast. But that act of piety right now makes absolutely no sense. And have you ever been in a situation where an act of piety has been a traditionalized, and you've looked at it and gone, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. Why are we doing this? We're just doing this because a former generation of people did it that way. And now we think we have to do it that way because that's what's godly. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Listen, guys, listen. If you put a new piece of cloth on a torn garment, it will rip and burst and stretch further. If you put new wine in old wineskins, they will be destroyed. God is constantly doing something new. Now, I want, I want you to hear this. This is important. That doesn't mean that sin stops being sin. Remember, Jesus looked at those people he was having dinner with and said, yeah, they're sinners, but I'm eating with them anyways. He's not saying that their activities are great. He's saying that I came to pursue them, okay? In the same way, we don't want to ever, ever traditionalize sinning in the name of detraditionalizing. We don't want to do that. But that's not what Jesus is doing. He's saying, you don't need to engage in that act of piety right now. It makes no sense for the time that we're living in. Right now, my wife and I try every night to have some Bible time with our kids. We read them a Bible story, we talk about it, or, or we, we, we say some memory verses and we pray with them. And we try to do that every night. And it's a bit of a sacrifice because I just want my kids to go to bed so I can watch Expedition Unknown. That's all I want to do. But I, I want to do that because it makes sense because I, I'm their teacher. I'm supposed to teach them the word of God. I'm supposed to teach them to love God and know God. And so we do that. It makes a lot of sense right now to make that sacrifice. But if in 20 years I'm calling them each night saying, hey, it's time for family Bible time. Gather your kids. We'll FaceTime. That would be odd. That would be an act of piety that no longer makes any sense. Just because it was good when they were five does not mean it's going to be good when they're 25. It doesn't make sense anymore. Hopefully, God will have moved me on to the new thing by then. Because godliness is to pursue what God is doing right now, to get on board with what he is doing today. It's important. Speaking of Expedition Unknown, the first year of our marriage, my wife and I did not have cable or a streaming service. You're like, what? They are so weird. They're religious. They're religious folks. Why do we do that? Because we recognized that life was going to get harder when we moved in together, not easier. And we thought it'd be good to get to know one another and spend time together and talk and enjoy one another's company for that first year. Well, that made plenty of sense for our first year. But now, at the end of the day, talking, not going to happen. (laughs) 
We will talk when the kids go to college. We will talk again then. We have not had a meaningful conversation since the Obama administration. It's true. No, I'm kidding. We have. We strive for it. But at the end of the day, we just like to sit down, and it's 9 o'clock. We've had them going to bed for an hour and 15 minutes at that point and watch a show and fall asleep to it. Okay. Did God call us to do that in the first year of our marriage? Yes. Are we living in guilt and shame that we don't do it anymore? No. Because God's constantly doing a new thing. He's constantly doing a new thing. He's constantly doing a new thing. What's God doing in you? You should be leaving church on a regular basis thinking, what am I doing? What is God calling me to? What needs to change? What's he calling me to today? Rather than fighting for the past, you should be fighting for his present. That's what this whole episode about fasting is all about. Finally, to be a person based in religion is to worship one's own standards. There is nothing in the law of God that said that those disciples couldn't pluck those heads of grain. It's just silly. They were allowed to take the walk according to the Pharisees' rules. They just weren't allowed to pluck that grain. And the idea that Jesus was prohibited from healing somebody on the Sabbath is ludicrous. It's just outrageous. But that's what happens the longer we get into religion. It calcifies us and hardens our hearts. And we don't worship the rules. We worship our own standards. Our own standards, because they're different than anybody else's on the planet, by the way. Unless you're in a very controlling church, in which case you have to all think the same way. But they're different than anybody else's on the planet. Your standards are different. But the standards of Victory Life are, are different than the standards of Broadman Baptist or different than the standards at Lighthouse. So I don't even want to call it rules, it's standards. It's the standards that we live by. And we can get so into those that we can worship them. We can worship church policy. We can worship, we can worship looking at people and saying, no, yes, do it our way. And I want to tell you something. That is not what we were intended to do. We were not designed to worship standards. We were designed to worship God. You know, people come to my house sometimes, and they play Monopoly. I love playing Monopoly. It's a great game. But you got house rules, don't you? Like, like I, have, I have taken Monopoly and the brilliance of that original game, and I have, I have, I have made eight to ten rules over and above Monopoly to make it the perfect game. <laughs> and then people come to my house. I say, all right, here are the house rules. Get a cup of coffee. I'll explain them to you. And I go on and I go on and I go on. And a couple of years ago, my wife looked at me and she said in her righteous and truly righteous tone, Matthew, you've got to stop playing with all these house rules. Nobody gets them or understands them but you. And it's not fair to do to guests. It's not fair. Sometimes we have to stop living in the house rules because no one understands them but us. And it's not fair to do to guests. That's what religion does. It worships standards and rules that are foisted on top of God's law. What does godliness do? In both the cases of walking through the grain field and healing this withered hand, godliness focuses on the needs of others. His disciples were hungry. 
so he allowed them to eat. A man was disabled, so Jesus healed him. Jesus' entire ministry was predicated on the needs of people. And he wasn't going to allow standards or tradition or separation to keep him from the mission that God had given him. That's what he was after. The most important need that any human being has is not of separation or standards. It's, it, it, it's not about tradition. The most important need that anybody has is to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I'm not, I will never and have not and won't ever pursue a policy at Victory Life by which we look at the scriptural laws, the things that are true of scripture and say that's no longer sin. We won't do that here. We'll call sin, sin. We will. We will. We'll call wrong, wrong. Just as Jesus did. But we will not allow the calcification of religion to destroy what God is doing in this world. Jesus would not let the Pharisees of that age do it. And we must not become the Pharisees of this age. Because God is still giving away his gospel to people. And he wants them to know him as his Lord, as their Lord and Savior. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning?